hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with James Poulos. I say today, but really, this podcast was recorded in September of 2022. We kept trying to reschedule a part two, it never happened, but James's wisdom really shines through today. This was almost a year ago, especially from release. And yet, and yet, the topics are only more relevant today. It's probably easier to release an interview like this today than it was a year ago. We discuss Alexis de Tocqueville, technology as a social force, democracy, the new right, GPUs, why we need a First Amendment for compute, and how to live a repentant and democratic, lowercase d, democratic life. That sure does sound like the right episode for today. So, without further ado, here's James Poulos. All right, welcome to the show. Metaphors overrated or underrated? Uh, definitely overrated. Interesting. Okay, that was actually not the answer I expected. We'll get to that. So your first book, or, or not, I'm not sure if this was your first book, but the first book that I, uh, that I saw from you was this book on uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, right? And they're, they're often the remarks about his description of American civil society. And do you want to give just a, a brief explanation of kind of the message of that book? Yeah, so definitely book number one, that was The Art of Being Free. It is my study of Alexis de Tocqueville, although for those who care about such things, there's a lot more going on in the footnotes, lots of footnotes in that one, an approach that I later changed for my next book for reasons we can talk about too. Basic thesis of that book is Tocqueville is probably our best single resource for understanding <clears throat> the national character of the American people, the uh, habits and patterns of life in American civilization, you could say. And what he has to tell us is that there's something constitutively crazy about American life. We find ourselves very restless and decentered. And especially in the absence of a kind of religious devotion that anchors our hearts, we find ourselves surprisingly weak, unable to surmount or even sometimes just to process the kind of elemental forces of democratic society that we, that we think that we like. He says that we like liberty, but we love equality. And this sets us down a, a road that poses some real challenges psychologically and socially, you know, not just how we deal with other people in our lives, but how we see ourselves and how we size up our own prospects in the world in the, the brief span of time that we have as, as mortal human beings, the surface of this planet. Um, and so the, the bright side to all this, because it can sound a little bleak at first, is that there are ways of ameliorating these problems that in spite of it all, we still have vigorous resources that we can rely on and we're willing to put in the effort and dedicate ourselves in a certain way. We can master the art of being free, as he puts it, ripped the title straight out of, of uh, Democracy in America. And we can find a way to preserve our sanity and our composure for ourselves and for one another. That was the upshot of the book. It hit shelves on inauguration weekend of 2017 in January, sort of a strange moment to be releasing a book, especially one with anything political to it. 
so it was sitting there on the shelves in you know every Barnes and Noble, I guess, sandwiched in between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Yeah, there's something fitting about that, I guess, because uh, as we discovered, <laughs> people by and large rejected that thesis. They said, "No, we would like to be crazier." And when I realized that this was happening, and you know, the the book got all of the sort of coverage that I wanted and established, I guess, the kind of reputation that I was going for at the time. But it did it did prompt me to sort of reconsider everything that I thought I knew. And that by a sort of circuitous route brought us here to this moment and to, to the second book, which I'm sure we'll talk about. What was that change like, right? Both in terms of what changed and also how did it feel going through it? It was a little disorienting at first. You know, it, it didn't really work for me to write off hundreds of millions of Americans as just people who had gone crazy or who had simply given in to certain political messages and became more, you know, quote unquote, extreme. It seemed to me to be a very pat non-explanation for what was unfolding with increasing vigor and sweep. Intuitively, it seemed to me that it was hard, not impossible to understand or account for these dramatic changes that we were seeing culturally and socially without reference to the technological context in which they were taking place. This turned out to be a, a decent intuition. I adopted by necessity a sort of beginner's mind attitude through the, the good graces of a few, few contacts who marinated in that world for a long time. I started working my way through uh, Marshall McLuhan and uh, some of the rest of the, the elementals on media and tech theory. Paul Virilio, another good one. Jacques Ellul, there are a number of them. Neil Postman, Walter Ong, on and on it goes. From there, things started to make sense. Debut of digital technology created a new context, one in which many of our strengths as Americans seemed to become weaknesses, one in which our, our weakest points were kind of hit on the on the buzzer by the, the most dramatic, portentous mm. changes that we were confronting. Everyone uh, realized, even if just on kind of an instinctive level, that a, uh, a massive new alien presence had conquered our lives, um, conquered America, conquered the world, and that raised existential questions about our identity, about our purpose, about our humanity, about our Americanness, about whether America was this kind of charmed or special place that we thought that it was. And people needed to approach the process of answering those questions in a new way, and in a way that responded to the, the elemental or existential character of those questions. You know, I would say that the proper way to understand that is theologically. These, these raise theological questions and they demand theological answers. It was Tocqueville himself who said religion is the only permanent state of mankind. I think he was right then. I think he's right now. And that, that was, yeah, you know, and then by the time I had pieced all that together, uh, things started to make a little more sense. Right. I actually see this journey paralleled in a lot of my libertarian friends, I think. I think libertarianism right now is a kind of identity crisis. And it's, it's quite similar to what Tocqueville described happening in America, right? America was a country whose people was much more willing to basically defer things to the interpersonal, right? Uh, 
to defer to basically a kind of personal negotiation, maybe not that complex, but basically working things out with those around you and having less well-defined rigidity, at least at a kind of top-down level. And as I'm sure you'll talk about, and as you've talked about in your book, that book is Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War, as for the audience, of course. And as I think I've observed as well, this means that when those relations become formed on social media, when they become formed on mass media, then America's hit harder than basically anyone else. So I think a really good place to kick this off, right? The first book was called The Art of Being Free. How how has social media changed how we try to be free? Well, look, I you know, I think you have to start from the the basics. It's it's human nature to seek shortcuts. It's human nature to default to a kind of passivity or lethargy. And it is human nature to, you know, bounce back and forth spiritually or psychologically between a kind of appetitive frenzy, outwardness, and a kind of wounded brooding, bitterness, melancholy on the one side, overweening ambition on the other, desire to to dominate the crowd, to have the spotlight, to seize the, the, the prestige or whatever on one side. And then on the other, you know, the cave that you crawl back into and, and scheme and, and, and dream and doubt and nurse your grievances. And that oscillation, that, that back and forth movement is something that you find in St. Augustine's depiction of the soul. You find it in Tocqueville, you find it in a couple other places between point A and point B. And that's important because it helps you to understand why democratic conditions pose special problems for for people living under democratic conditions. America, as Tocqueville describes it, was a place full of churn, full of rootlessness, full of movement, a lot of energy there, a certain melancholy, a certain kind of drift and uncertainty, uh, ambivalence about what was over the horizon. One example that has always stuck out at me was Tocqueville talks about meeting an American sailor who is very proud and boastful even that his sailing vessel, his commercial sailing vessel was, was of the, the very latest make and model. It was, you know, the fastest clipper on the seas or whatever, you know, he, he may have said, I, I wonder what his exact words are. Tocqueville, of course, just paraphrases him. In order for him to make his livelihood, he needed to be able to cross the Pacific Ocean in order to bring goods back and forth from coast to coast. And so it was, you know, just as, as these days, high frequency trading means if you can beat the competition to a certain body of information by, you know, 0.0005 seconds, then you win and they lose. Back then it was, you know, if your ship could, could beat the competition to harbor by, you know, a day or two, then you won and they lost. And uh, so in his boasting about this ship, the sailor said, you know, yeah, it's, it's so great that it's going to be obsolete in uh, probably just a couple more months, and then I'll have to get a new greatest sh- ship available. And Tocqueville marveled at this, and he thought, what exactly is going on here when the key to success is to pursue knowingly what will be worthless, what will be obsolete? How do you keep up that pace? 
He saw that same sort of impulse in the way that Americans would. Uh, he, he said of the French that they arrived in the New World and immediately started building walled cities in which to live unless they went completely you know, wild and just wandered off into the forest, ma- uh, married a Native American, sold furs, traded on the, you know, in, in on almost complete lack of civilization. Whereas the English, the Anglos, no sooner did they arrive and create these bustling commercial coastal cities, than many of them left and began this push into the interior to, to build more settlements, more townships. And as, as Tocqueville observed, uh, quickly would leave those two. He was out in the forest somewhere, probably somewhere around Illinois, and he saw a log cabin that had been been abandoned. And he reflected sadly on how, you know, here was this house that was almost not even finished, and the residents had picked up stakes and moved on. This spectacle that presented itself to him of a people who simply could not bear to be wherever they called home for very long driven by by these deep-seated feelings and understandings of the cosmos to keep keep going and always leave this kind of unfinished trail behind them. And what he saw in democratic life was therefore a shared psychology or a spirit of, of the civilization where the only stable point in public or private life was in the human heart. And even there, difficult to establish firmly a stable point. And that for him is why religion was so uh, crucial, uh, because it offered a way to establish stability, firmness in the human heart that he found quite lacking outside the heart in the, the churn and the turmoil of, of democratic life. Now, he wasn't afraid to be particular about, about which religion. He wasn't all that ecumenical. And here it's, it's interesting in a way that maybe people wouldn't expect. He observed that you know the Puritans arrived and uh, immediately attempted to create a civil code that was ripped out of the first chapters of the Bible. And he said, you know, they they quickly found out that this wasn't really workable. And from there, they they moderated their laws. And because Christianity is so general for Tocqueville, it, it pretty much all boiled down to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Because of Christianity's generality. It allowed for people to have that kind of anchoring of their heart, but also at the same time to range quite freely over the many fields of human endeavor, which is something that you need to do in order to have a commercial republic of any kind, and certainly a large commercial republic. So for him, you know, a religion like Islam that has much more particular kind of prohibitions and rules and regulations that uh, reach down more into the intimate details of everyday life. For him, he suggested that that kind of religion would not do well in under democratic conditions, not flourish, and would not really serve people who found themselves living democratic lives. Interesting to sort of think about that uh, relative to the way that spiritual life in America is trending today in various ways. But for him, it was a pretty narrow road for how democratic life would work. He wrote the book because he feared that in France, the partisans of democracy had really no sophisticated understanding of of what it was they were talking about or really of the soul of man and how human beings uh, functioned under democratic conditions. And so he sought to learn from American life uh, kind of what was in the box to understand what lessons could be drawn for people outside the U.S. Uh, but I think, you know, the the enduring message from democracy in America is that Americans 
still have a, a thing or two to learn about themselves and a thing or two to learn about how to avoid the snares and the pitfalls that our own way of life tends to tends to foster for us. Right. And I think that that mistake that a lot of democratic theorists made and a lot of them still make, right, is that they base too much thought off of the individual, right? There, there of course, are individuals. But when it comes to deciding on political systems, it's much more like a group, a clump, or I think I heard you use the, the word swarm on another podcast. So this takes, us to, this takes us to your second book, Human Forever. And uh, I mean, I'm just going to reiterate that subtitle again. I think it's so apt, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. Right. So let's take that step by step. What are the digital politics and uh, what would Tocqueville think of them, let's say? At a certain point, America and Americans generally fell into an understanding that that they couldn't really afford freedom as as it was known in America. A lot of energy shifted into the abstraction of freedom to the symbol of freedom, to a kind of mental representation of freedom. And I think the dominance of this dream of freedom became so large and so powerful exactly because beginning at least with the progressives, the judgment on the American people that was leveled by the, the developing American elite was that historical development was unforgiving and that the American people were, you know, too soft, too stupid, too slow, too ignorant, too coarse. In short, you know, we're, we're too much of country bumpkins to keep up. And so it became a necessity of, of national security almost for a leadership to seize political control of the many and basically force them to do what the elite thought needed to be done in order to to catch them up to the tempo of the unfolding of history on earth. This, of course, is exactly the opposite of what Tocqueville counseled. He said, you know, look, you need to force the people to to manage their own affairs it's it's a very difficult tutelage to learn this art of freedom but it's irreplaceable and once you learn it its fruits are many and this itself you know has theological roots this idea that in fact there are no shortcuts that what is really generative comes from the bottom up that in order to reach any kind of sort of greatness in in spiritual terms any kind of spiritual ascension you do have to begin at the bottom. You do have to begin in humility. And you have to proceed in, in the way that, that Jesus Christ himself proceeded. If you accept basic Christian theology, you certainly must be impressed by the picture of God himself entering into the world in almost the, the most quiet and humble almost imperceptible way possible that there were signs, but only for those who had eyes to see and that only a few did. And that instead of coming in, you know, in glory or coming in on a flaming chariot or coming in a a cosmic war of epic proportions, 
He came in as a humble man. The miracles themselves had something very humble to them in, in almost all cases. They're very personal. The, the life uh, and the story of Jesus is one of a remarkable union between the humility and the obedience of man at its, at its most heartfelt and soft and quiet and the majesty and greatness and supremacy of God the Father. And so all of this was, you know, of really no account to those turn of the century progressives. They were on a much different trip and they began a process which culminated after World War II in, frankly, much of the, the federal government as it stood becoming almost an appendage of a kind of super government which was the government devoted to to maintaining the the military industrial complex, as Dwight Eisenhower warned, the government that was in control of the nuclear weapons, and the government that was in, in control of national scientific and technological research and development ever since the Manhattan Project, which itself was virtually a secret government, a massive project with many thousands of secret workers spread across the country, beavering away on, on the atomic bomb. And even after the bomb was built and used, and after America's brief nuclear monopoly or atomic monopoly, proliferation of the bomb began, that sort of military industrial complex and its control over research and development uh, became still stronger, still more important. And that process never really ended. And, you know, there's nothing xenophobic about pointing out that the way in which our government was transformed along those lines relied very heavily on uh, some of the, the most powerful scientists from foreign countries, from Europe. Yeah, right? you took the Nazi scientists. <laughs> well, you had, you had Nazi scientists, you had the, the Martians, who are all Hungarians, you got the sort of the best of the Jews, the best of the Italians, the best of the Germans, the best of the Hungarians. And then, of course, you had the British, who were peer to peer for a while there on uh, on computation frontiers of cryptography and computation uh and so you know anyway you slice it you had a suddenly very massive foreign influence over the u.s government at its very highest levels and how it determined what kinds of science would be done what kind of technologies would be created and how powerful those innovations in that research agenda would be over the doings of politics in America, and and increasingly, the fabric of everyday life. Many of those innovations beginning in the 70s, right through the 80s, into the 90s, and, and all the way up to now, had a dramatic influence on popular culture, on pop entertainment, on the popular imagination, on our very sense of what America was and what a human being was in the cosmic sense. Everything from, you know, Darth Vader's helmet to cable television, to GPS, to touchscreen technology, everything that went into your smartphone, all of that stuff basically spun out of a military R&D. And so two things happening at the same time for, for similar reasons. One, the kind of runaway technologization of the American spirit. And then two, the abandonment of the idea that the American people themselves deserved to govern themselves or the abandonment of the idea that America had the luxury of leaving it to the American people to, to pursue you know, what, what Tocqueville called 
the infinite paths toward a single destination rather than the one path that some some individual or, or group of elites marches people down. He said that that kind of unitary path was very sterile and that the infinite paths were, were divine. It was a divine idea to, to lead people toward one destination through that whole wild variety of paths. And I think that's what we've seen happen. We've seen Americans grow very upset and very confused by the way that, that power continues to be concentrated, that their, their voice continues to be abstracted away from their own neighborhoods, their own communities, their own towns, their own localities, their own states, uh, into you know, a, a sort of clash of specs. Every time there's a national election, you know, you get a bunch of red specs over here and a bunch of blue specs over there. And whoever has the best swarm of specs, you know, wins for a while until the next election. And then with Trump, not even until the next election. So things are coming to a head and they're coming to a head because the the spiritual crisis that we are experiencing and the technological crisis that we are experiencing are really one and the same crisis. And they have to do with the character of our regime. And they have to do with the fact that our regime is failing because it has convinced itself, I think sincerely convinced itself in some respects, that it's simply just not an option anymore to have an America that is a large commercial republic where citizens work together on solving their own problems from the bottom up. I think that the elites have sort of been blackpilled in that way and that they're trying to make the best of it and they're trying to, to see it as you know kind of the necessary historical change that has to be undertaken in order for us to, to enter into a new golden age, uh, even one that maybe looks a lot different from what normal Americans would want. And so it's, it's taken on the, uh, the aspect and the reality of a spiritual war. And it's largely conducted through, through military technologies and, and military technologies that have been repurposed as entertainment technologies. They're trying, oh, to, yeah. ban, they're trying to ban high-powered high GPUs for, for normies to buy. They're already closing down the sale of, of NVIDIA stuff to Russia and China because it has dual use. Well, gosh, you know, we've all seen the, the YouTube videos of, of guys out in Ukraine or, or Armenia hooking up a few extra controllers to their smartphones and flying around drones that kill people. Like our phones mm. are dual use. It's all dual use. It's all uh, it's all weaponry. It's all being put to put to use in the waging of these spiritual contests on a very very grand level. Yeah, I want to focus in on that point that there's been a kind of blackpilling or the development of not just a belief but a sentiment, right? Not not just like a factual statement. In fact, most people wouldn't acknowledge this publicly a kind of feeling among the elite that people don't, as you say, people don't deserve the infinite paths, right? How did, how did that happen? You, you talked a little bit about the develop, the development of the national science foundation, that kind of thing. Was that the moment or, or was it a bit later than that? When, when did the elites start to feel that way? Well, I think it was process. I think it was generational, you know, certainly when something like the great depression comes along, there was an attempt by some Americans and at least a handful of, of public officials to say, you know, hey, we don't need to, we don't need to just destroy our form of government in order to save the country, you know, for, for Roosevelt and his brand of public official. The idea was different. The idea was, well, no, we're just going to kind of throw things at the wall and see what sticks. 
but everything that is going to get thrown is going to come out of a federal government that has that is really becoming a national government, not just a federal government. You know, it was, it was all of a piece. I mean, the, the, the growth of the administrative state was fueled by a kind of historicism, as I suggested. But it was also fueled by what I think is even deeper still than historicism, which is a sensibility or a judgment that really the only thing that causes historical development or historical change is technology. You get whispers of this in Machiavelli. Leo Strauss picks up on this. For Strauss, it's very important that Machiavelli basically says like, well, you know, natural science, uh, which is, you know, basically like Aristotelian philosophy. It's all well and good, but when the enemies are at the gates, it doesn't save you. And uh, really, you need to, to turn philosophy uh, toward military applications. Otherwise, you will not have a regime to worry about whether you're corrupting. And, you know, Machiavelli was, in some senses, pointing out the obvious. And from our standpoint, at least until recently, it felt fairly easy to say, like, well, if the choice was between all of these these monks who would just kind of wander around flagellating themselves because the world was in pretty bad shape, or Machiavelli, yeah, you know, you you chop up your enemies sometimes, you know, maybe you tell some lies, you know, hey, politics isn't beanbag, and, you know, would you rather be a sort of miserable mendicant friar, or would you rather have the opportunity to to pursue your human capabilities in a in a relatively peaceful and orderly society that seemed pretty commonsensical and the uh, the, the Machiavellian smaller Republican tradition with its with its love of arms and its understanding of spiritual arms was something that had a pretty healthy long life judged by its own standards anyway it caught on to a certain degree in England and some of that spread into the US and that sort of cantankerousness and that unwillingness to relinquish the firearm that is so characteristic of so many Americans is important and has some some fundamental roots. But at the same time, Machiavellianism proved to be quite vulnerable to to being hijacked by by elites with a a sense of spiritual destiny, elites who wished to transform the character of their own regime and of their own people more than they wish to defend the regime and the people against outside attack. And so there was a kind of bait and switch there in the history of, of political thought and the development of, of political science that really, you know, rolled the practice of warfare and the understanding of human destiny away from from Machiavellianism and into something much more reliant on on the abstraction of technology. For all of Machiavelli's willingness to 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 bump up military science to the top of the stack, I think that he would have been puzzled and dismayed by the way that basically bureaucrats could co-opt his basic line of thinking and transform it into a way to routinize 
society and routinize everyday life and take people's destinies as citizens or subjects or human beings away from themselves and turn them into a, just a sort of biomass supporting you know an enterprise that increasingly and i think you know we see this today that increasingly even loses interest in the preservation of humanity and instead focuses on mm. on uh, on transcending uh, our our human character and our human nature our human limitations altogether ultimately as part of a project to replace god you know to replace god by becoming his gods right and it's interesting that you bring up Machiavelli because we're seeing increasingly a kind of right-wing elite that maybe also agrees that people maybe not don't deserve, but just cannot claim those infinite paths, right? Who don't believe in those infinite paths. And they basically say, all right, the only solution to this kind of managerialism is that we actually just have to take absolute power, right? So do you see that development as a kind of danger? Do you see that development as, as, as wrong? Like, what do you think of those kinds of counter elites who also don't believe in the infinite paths? Well, you know, the, the pressure builds. And I think the, the counter elites face the kind of dilemma that Machiavelli faced. You know, you can you can seize the regime, be a new prince, restore the best of what was, but recognize that you can't go back in time. And so understand what new modes and orders are required to be a new prince, which is very difficult. Prospects are bad right out of the gate. You are really find yourself an extremist and you have to go to lengths that ideally a prince would not have to go to. And, and that places a certain kind of pressure of destiny on you that is extraordinary and that is the kind of thing that normal people can't really engage in or you know or you can say wow you know for me to pretend that i lack any responsibility for the the horribleness of the times and the failure of my people gosh you know rather than just trying to grab the ring of power for myself and hope for the best i should probably begin by humbling myself, I should probably begin with repentance and penitence. I should probably, you know, give up on the, these ruins that I stand in, stop trying to build new sandcastles out of them, and instead retreat to the steppe, retreat to the monasteries, and beg God for forgiveness and hope for the best. That's a stark choice. That is a choice that Americans have not really had to make or even contemplate very deeply until right about now. And that is something that I think, you know, anyone who's serious about this kind of stuff has to wrestle with. And it's true. On the one hand, you know, yes, we are standing in the ruins. Uh, yes, the proper response to the, the sweeping and in some ways, in spite of itself, shocking failure and collapse of our institutions and collapse of our dreams and the revelation that all of the wonderful things we expected to happen as a result of our faith in technology have not come to happen. All the indicators are looking very grim indeed. And the proper reaction to that is to fall on your knees before God and beg for forgiveness. Yes, the proper response is to stop doing these things and to become penitent. At the same time, Americans are accustomed to having some sort of baseline 
duty of loyalty to their country and its people and through them to to our our constitutionally guaranteed form of government ailing as it may be for me for example i do feel like i have some sort of basic obligation responsibility to make an effort to make an effort to lay things out in a way that fairly ordinary people can understand and get their arms around and take action around to to chart a path forward to help create some some encouragement and some shared activity around around crafting a rise out of these ruins it's not going to look like you know oh well just like more technology please that'll solve it it's not going to solve it we can't be even really looking for solutions it's not about beating all of the bad people out of government although certainly that you know that would be nice that would be a plus if we could get rid of all of the corruption and bad people in government but you're going to find bad people at every level of society all always all the time we have to give up on purification of the institutions we have to give up on purification of technology and we have to give up on the purification of language. You know, there are a lot of coders out there who are like, yes, everything is fallen <laughs> and corrupt. That's why I've created, <laughs> I've created a new programming language and it's perfectly determinate and it's perfectly neutral. And anything you put in the box, whatever you tell it to come out as, it's going to come out as exactly that. And that's going to be neutral. And just like Umberto Eco said, the quest for the perfect language, we have fulfilled it. It's going to be tech. It's going to save us. Coding is going to save us and found our new regime. I'm not buying it. We cannot escape from being human. We cannot re- escape from our responsibilities for being human. And, you know, unfortunately for the, the ecumenicals, we cannot escape with technology being as powerful as it is, the, the recollection that the only way to understand our human existence and our human identity as good news is for us to understand it theologically. I think I basically completely agree with that. Uh, something that actually made me really optimistic about the kind of new right, as that term is uh, maybe overused or misused, I was at the National Conservatism Conference last week, and Yoram, the organizer, gave this speech, which was just fundamentally personal and and fundamentally uh, fundamentally about repentance and about living living a life in this kind of true way, right? And I use that in a very specific sense. I'm not sure if you've read this, but I basically wrote a review of Edward Teach's uh, Sadly Porn, which was basically describing how difficult it was as a kind of young person, as a Zoomer, to really believe in, like, in ideas, Right, believe in, and I mean that like in a very specific way. I mean that there's this process Nietzsche describes of basically people or ideas becoming unbelievable. Right, uh, he most distinctly described God or of metaphysics becoming unbelievable as contrary to the way that everyone is living their lives, in the way that they're going about, in the way that they're asking questions, in the way that they're finding to, in the way that they're trying to alleviate their problems. And to me, like if you are a Zoomer living in a Western country in 2022, you are going about your life, and this actually deeply relates to your book with things like social media, with new technologies, with this kind of deferral to a sort of swarm, 
you're going about your life in a way that makes believing in any kind of motivation that is greater than yourself to make that belief impossible. And what I'm hopeful is that I think Yoram and others like him are seeing this and are realizing that no elite can be like this, right? In the long term, like no people can live like this either. But no elite can live like this. And you have to, like you said, you have to go and you have to repent. You have to look at this and you have to say like, okay, I've basically messed up my entire life. Partially my fault, partially not. And I have to find the way, I have to find the way out of this, right? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so how, how do you find your way out of this, right? What is, you've gone to church, right? You've, you've started to repent. You look to these spiritual traditions that seem honestly like very detached from every part of your life. Where do you go from here? Let's see if I can back into it this way. Sometimes people will ask, you know, oh, the new right, like, what what even is that? You know, like, what does that mean? I thought neoconservatism was the new right. It was like the new, new. Yeah. At what point do you just go back to like, it's original Coke again. Like, what's the new right? And my answer is like, well, it's just like my friends, you know, it's just like you kind of hang around long enough. And then finally, 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 some of the establishment guys start to, you know, loosen a finger or two of their grip on these movement institutions. And, oh, hey, you know, it's like suddenly there are a bunch of people in their 30s and 40s who have not been given an opportunity to put their hands on the steering wheel. And now they do. And so a lot of this is is simply generational. And a lot of what is going on on the right these days, I think, is highly reflective of the the character of the generational turnover. And that includes a certain kind of of philosophical plurality and pluralism. You know, I I would be surprised if for all of, you know, Yoram's sincerity and erudition, if I had to bet, I would bet that that an Israeli citizen with a rich understanding of the history of British legal philosophy is in fact not going to save America. Like I would bet that that is not like that is not part of the repair kit that Americans will find it fruitful to avail themselves of in this moment might do better for England, might do better for Israel differences that we thought had kind of been just papered over or, or rendered obsolete by the triumph of the West or the end of history or whatever label you want to slap on these things, globalization. These differences have in fact endured. Not only are they not going away, but they are deepening. They perhaps may have been deepening all along. And so for Americans trying to reorient themselves, trying to find a way to pick up the pieces and, and move on, the, the process is going to have to be a recognizably American one. Just take, for instance, the fact that America is still 
the only large commercial republic in the world, more or less. That is very strange when you think about it. The founders were aware of this fact. They were very concerned during the founding era. Yeah, they engaged with the political philosophy, but they drew from, you know, from Cicero all the way up to Locke and many places uh, along the way in an effort to, to ensure that the political philosophy never became more of the point than actually founding a durable regime. Um, mm. And the <laughs> actual regime that they actually needed to found was one that was going to comport with the culture and the character of a, a moral and religious people in a large republic uh, and a, a regime that would defend and protect that character over time to the extent commensurate or compatible with the, the character of the people. As America has, has trundled on, um, despite the, the tremendous transformations of our regime that we've seen, despite the tremendous failures of our regime that we've seen, we are still more or less a large commercial republic. And in order to remain America, we are going to have to still remain in some sense pretty darn large, pretty darn commercial, and pretty darn small our republican. Okay, so if all that's the case, then we start getting some guardrails, we start getting some contours around what kinds of activities are going to be fruitful in maintaining that condition, and what kinds of activities are not going to be so fruitful. At this point, you know, the new right has its different factions. And you know, you got like, because of the internet, every idea or concept or character, no matter how far-fetched or absurd or remote now has its own, you know, vibrant community, no matter how depraved or how cute it has its own vibrant community. And so there are going to be these, these fundamental theological disagreements peppered through any political coalition in America right now. And people are just going to have to live with that for a while, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a game of figuring out how to return to center stage the most basic things about our American character and understand them in the new light of this technologized world that we live in. One easy example is, you know, you look at the first and the second amendments. We have a right to free speech. We have a right to free assembly. We have a right to, to freely keep and bear arms. We have the, the right to, within certain limits, to uh, say things about our regime in public. And how are we doing on the First and Second Amendments these days? Well, you know, not so <laughs> great. It's a mixed bag. And you can see that the regime, as it is right now, very clearly does not want to allow the people, does not want to, to tolerate the risk that the people will do things that they don't want them to do through the exercise of those rights. And there's nowhere clearer that that's on display than in the realm of technology itself. The high-powered GPUs are being taken off the market. Bitcoin and other cryptos under attack. They do not want people to freely keep and bear compute. They know that this compute is powerful. They know that it can be used as weapons. And they simply do not care that we have, might have a natural right to keep and bear weapons and to, to freely associate and freely communicate. 
And it's not going to be America. It's not going to be a commercial republic. It's not going to be a large commercial republic. And the character of the people is going to be transformed out of the American character if we continue to go down the road that is being laid out for us, where technology is going to be used and commanded in a way that we are not allowed to participate in, in accordance with our constitutionally guaranteed natural rights. So we can start there. You know, we can start with things like, a, you know, whether you want to call it a Second Amendment for compute or a Digital Rights Act or a Digital Rights Amendment. It's all implicit in there in, in the amendments. And those amendments themselves were merely making explicit what was what was inherent to the, the Constitution and to and to the character of the people that that it was layered on top of. It was all implicit. I do think we need to get explicit again because uh, we've tried to go the implicit route. We've tried to go this sort of Burkean route of like, well, you know, it's it's kind of like incremental and, you know, things will, will naturally evolve. You know, you got to, conservatism is just a disposition. And, you know, it's not that, that Burke was an idiot and didn't know what he was talking about, but like we've seen the fruits of this kind of like apply the brakes judiciously approach and it has been a failure. And so it's, it is important to be muscular. It is important to speak frankly and bear witness to the truth. And it is important, I think above all, to simply remind people, remind people of who they are, remind them that they are Americans, remind them that they are, that they are human beings, remind that it is good news to be human, uh, that they were created as, as the capstone of creation by a God who loves them, and that our destiny is something much better and much grander, but also much humbler and much, much calmer than what is being offered for us by, you know, people, some of them might have pretty good intentions. Some of them might be, you know, evil lizards, like regardless, the path that they're laying out for us is one where uh, we cease to be Americans. And in short order, we really cease to be humans. Right. Something that I always like to like to point out is that in the end, it doesn't matter so much whether they're trying to cause this mass dehumanization or whether it's a complete accident. What matters is it's happening. And, and we should best pay attention to that. I think, I mean, you spend the entire book doing this, but I'm wondering if you can, I don't know, because I, I, I don't think it's an idea that should be, should be condensed too much either, right? But, but with the time we have on this podcast, do you think you could give as simple of a case for why these two things are deeply connected, right? Why maintaining a sort of way of life, a sort of culture, and maintaining these digital rights, why those things are so interleaved? You see the horrors around you, the man-made horrors that the memes talk about. Uh, you see people sinking into misery, into despair, turning themselves into monsters, losing themselves, losing the spiritual war that we are all engaged in. And you see that these horrible transformations are unfolding in a thoroughly technologized world, a thoroughly technologized space-time. You see that if we do not reassert control and authority, over our machines, our machines will become ever more alienated from ourselves. You see that 
in a sense, the apocalypse that we've been dreading has already happened. And we can stand here and do nothing as a result, or we can take basic actions to remember who we are and remember that, that we are, are put here to be good and that we can be good if we are humble enough and if we are, if we are serious enough, if we are strong enough to take responsibility. We need to start telling our machines what to do, and we need to start telling them to do things that are good for us, that protect and reinforce who we are, who we were created to be. Trying to run away from that is not going to work. Yes, if you want to go live in the woods, you know, that the, the door is open. Yes, if you want to go to the monasteries, go to the monasteries. Many people should go to the monasteries, and there's much important work to be done there. But everyone can't go live in the woods. Then it's not the woods anymore. And everyone can't go live in the monasteries. Then they're not monasteries anymore. And so what we need are we need to ensure that ordinary Americans living ordinary lives, fruitfully and sanely, mentally and physically well, are telling our machines, their machines, what to do, how to preserve their country, how to preserve their way of life, how to preserve their humanity. We need to catechize these bots. And that's not going to happen if we continue to be alienated away from our technology, if our leaders continue to, to ensure that we are computed rather than that we are computing. And time is short. They're busy in, in their hives. You see the press releases come out from this, this crippled and dysfunctional White House about going to work on central bank digital currency. You see the SEC trying to stamp out the ability of any American to freely conduct uh, commercial and cultural relations using something as powerful as Bitcoin. You know, Vitalik has been very clear, you know, he wants Ethereum to be a world computer. And there is some truth to this. You know, these technologies are powerful. They came out of military and intelligence research and development. And one way or the other, the regime either wants to seize them and use them or take them off the table for, for ordinary people. We have seen over 100 years of this social experiment of taking technological control away from ordinary people. And we have seen the carnage and the despair and the dysfunction and the misery and the insanity that it has unleashed. It is time to bring this experiment to an end. Uh, we have what we need right now. The technology is, is mature enough. We, you know, that fortunately, uh, our mental and physical health, there's still lots and lots, millions and millions of Americans who, who, would, who would say that they're, they're proud patriots that they support American technological dominance in the world and that they love their creator, that they, you know, most Americans still identify as Christians. It doesn't mean that it's perfect. doesn't mean that that's all you need, but it means that we have the resources and we have the, the population and we have the technology that we need right now to, to rebuild out of these ruins. And as long as we remember who we are, as long as we don't get confused, as long as we don't lose our nerve, and as long as we remain humble and understand theologically who we are and why we are here, we can do what needs to be done. Man, that, that feels great. But I have written down on this notepad in front of me, Brave New World versus 1984, right? There's this debate that comes up every once in a while about basically what, what is the nature of control in this kind of regime? I'm not sure that it's 1984, right? I think, at least in my opinion, it's much closer to Brave New World. 
where you have, I, I do think we have patriots. I do think we have, uh, um, we have Christians, but they're still on their phones. And I'm not sure it's so easy to convince them to kind of consciously control their devices in any kind of meaningful way. This doesn't mean I oppose a kind of digital rights amendment at all, but I'm also skeptical of its effectiveness. Skepticism is always warranted in times that suck as much as these, but skepticism is oftentimes just a way of rationalizing doubt and despair and hopelessness. And I don't think we can afford to, uh, to indulge in that luxury anymore. People spend so much time on their phones because that's where their friends are. People spend so much time on their phones because they are afraid that there's nothing left for them to do in life. People spend so much time on their phones because that's the only place that they feel that they can speak the most freely and freely associate. They see, you know, the, the flag of the new regime going up everywhere they look. And they think like, well, that's not my country. What country is that the flag of? What role do I have in this society? Oh, none. I better disappear into my phone. People spend so much time on their phones because the phone is very powerful. The phone gives them powers that they do not find when they're offline. And people spend so much time on their phones because of habit. It's an easy habit to be in. And it's, it fits in the palm of your hand, as they say. But what people need to think about is, you know, what are, what are they actually achieving on their phones? What are they actually achieving with their phones? Concretely, are you, are you contributing to, to, to anything generative? Are you participating in commercial transactions that leave your people better off, that leave you better off? Are you increasing the wisdom that's available in the world? I mean, you know, I didn't just throw my book up on the blockchain and sell it in Bitcoin because it was like cool or trendy or, you know, a way of sort of poking your head above the sea of worthless content. It was to model the message of the book. You know, it's being on the phone is not the problem. The problem is what you are doing on the phone and what the phone is doing to you as a result of what you're doing on the phone. And yeah, in a certain sense, like the medium of digital technology does shape us in in these kind of overwhelming and totalistic ways. And those those media effects are important and we need to pay attention to them, but they're not like all good or all bad. I agree. One thing that digital technology does is it obsolesces the imagination, which used to be the most powerful force in the world when TV was the dominant medium. And it retrieves, I'm just pulling this straight out of sort of McLuhan, and it retrieves memory. And right now, yes. you know, the, the memory of machines feels even more important and powerful than our memories. And yeah, if you, if you, try, to sup, uh, if you try to supplant human memory, if you try to shortcut away from the, the responsibility of human memory with machine memory, then yes, you're going to be leading a stunted existence that makes you invidiously convinced that being human is bad news. But guess what? The power of digital technology, the way that it retrieves memory, the way that it dominates the world with these memorious machines is something that has a shaping effect on our souls. And part of that effect is to make us remember wow, hey, wait a minute, let's snap out of it. We are going to cease to exist in a way that we have any respect for or love for or a sense of, of responsibility for or sense of connection to our creator if we continue 
to try to shortcut and supplant everything about us by offloading it onto machines. You know, this is this is akin to having already, in some senses, uploaded our consciousness to the cloud. You know, it's not nirvana. It's not heaven. It's a new kind of hell. And I think that that our experience with technology is leading people to to sort of rediscover hell in a way that that goes deeper um, and 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 bites harder than kind of those old, you know, sort of like the devil with the pitchfork poking you while you dance in the hot fire. You know, this is something that the 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 despair, the emptiness, the darkness, the hollowness, the uh, the the feeling of decay, that viral demon that the AI coughed up a, a couple of weeks ago. I will not say that name of that viral demon, but I think many people listening will probably have seen her or it. That is the face of of hell in digital times, and I think these things are are powerfully entering the consciousness. And Christian theologians will tell you that inflicting suffering can be a form of mercy when it comes from divine judgment. Sometimes, you know, the the merciful thing to do to someone is to punish them. Sometimes the merciful thing to do to a spoiled child is to tell them no. Sometimes the, the merciful thing to do to someone who is completely out of control and destroying themselves is to is to withhold comfort, you know, and sometimes the, the thing that is going to snap us out of our depraved and dysfunctional and errant ways is pain. And I think the, the capacity of digital technology to humble us, to shame us, to make us suddenly remember in a painful way our responsibilities and how we have failed them, you know, that, that isn't kind of like something that you can easily describe as, you know, just another malign effect of technology. It's not a, a malign effect insofar as we need that wake up call. We need the kind of intervention that causes us to have that sort of that shock of awareness and shame and that right. shocking feeling that, you know, our time, our time is not infinite. We cannot use technology to sort of infinitely hide from our, our collapsing space and time. The, the day of judgment, that day of judgment is here. It's here right now. Look around, you know, how much more of a sign do you need? And that kick in the pants is something that is real and that is having its effect and that is, is strongly informing the rising generations. I mean, this, we've been putting this off for a long time. You know, I, I took my AP English entrance exam, my AP exam in English in what, 1997. And what was the essay question? It was Compare and contrast, Brave New World in 1984, which is the more compelling vision of dystopia today? Like, we've been grinding away on these questions for way too long. I was writing about Fight Club in 2008 in an edited volume uh, edited by Jonah Goldberg. You know, hey guys, something's going on here. And now, you know, and now today in 2022, we're talking about Brave New World versus 1984 and, you know, talking about Fight Club on the internet is cool again. So, you know, I, I'm experiencing this kind of like out of body, like, come on, people, you know, we've had enough time, we've had enough time to sort of like chew it over. Uh, and now we see that, like, you know, the warnings are true. Uh, you should have listened to the artists. And now it's time to take some action. That was my interview with the amazing James Poulos. If you like the show, the best way you can support us is to let a friend know, either in person or online. Hopefully, not only are you helping us, but you're helping someone find something interesting and enjoyable. 
You can also help by subscribing on the Substack, either for free in order to get the weekly articles, or for paid to get bonus articles and to get an additional post-podcast reflection. You can also help us out by giving a five-star review on any podcast app or by leaving us comments and guest suggestions. We really do appreciate it. And of course, if you want another great episode next week, subscribe and see you next Monday.